Let's pray together. Father, once again, we approach your word and we are open to hearing it. We are thankful that we can, that we are able, that you have given us life through Christ, that we have understanding. We are no longer blind to the things of you. Thank you for doing that for your glory and for our good. We pray that tonight our time in your word would be a refuge for us, a a time in which we can just revel in your marvelous grace and your wonder, and that we would go away from this place better equipped to live for you, understanding the power of sin, the freedom of Christ, and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to do what you have asked. So superintend to our time tonight as you are glorified and honored by it and use these words to glorify your name, we pray in Christ. Amen. Let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to the final book of the Old Testament, prophet Malachi. I want to focus our attention. We were here several weeks ago, and tonight I want to focus our attention in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. I want to read this section for us. Malachi asking Israel, really from what God is saying, do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Then why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. And Thus is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Because I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Of course, you understand from our previous studies that Israel has been doubting God. They have been wondering why God, whom they 
or the children of, at least the children by way of promise, why God is not bringing blessing upon them. The nation of Israel is struggling. The people are suffering. They are, at this point, back in the promised land after years of exile. The temple has been rebuilt. And yet both the priests and people are not carrying out what they ought to. They are certainly going about their business by way of worship, but their worship is not authentic. You say, what do you mean? What we mean is it's not from a heart that truly loves God. It's a duty. It's an action. It's a rote outward thing that they are carrying out. It's a true worship is an action that is from the heart. And yet here is Israel in action without heart. And that is showing in how they are living, even though they continue to claim to love God. Their, their lives on an outward way are reflective of what's going on in their heart. And because they are going through the ritual of worship, they're expecting the blessings of God upon them. And yet those are lacking. And so they're doubting God and His promise. But the reasons for their problems is not God. The reason for their troubles is them. It is their inauthentic worship of God. It is their lack of heart to worship God from a true heart. And so God has graciously sent them the prophet Malachi to address their issues. Now, you remember from our studies before that they were doubting God's love for them way back in chapter 1. And so God in chapter 1 says, I do love you. And I've proven that love to you first by electing you. I've proven that I love you because I have chosen you as my own. How can you say that I don't love you? Esau, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I loved Jacob. Way back in chapter 1 and verse 2, I have an electing love for you. I chose you above others, even though you didn't deserve it. In fact, even though you were the younger son, I chose you to place my special love on. But also I've loved you by justice. The justice love that I showed Esau, Esau has been judged for refusing me. He wasn't simply judged by the necessity of me not choosing him, but the outworking of that has been a judgment upon him because he did not choose me. He refused me. And I've shown you my love by my universal love in that all the peoples of the earth would be loved through you. In other words, I have been authentic to you but you have not been authentic to me. And we saw in the rest of chapter 1 that God was saying, not only have you not been authentic in a general sense, but you haven't been authentic in your profession. You have not been authentic in the way you used your gifts. You have not been authentic as you go about serving me. That has been inauthentic. And how you see and use your time has been inauthentic. <clears throat> you disdain what you do. And what you need to be about, as we saw in chapter 2, 1 to 9, what you need to be about is my glory. 
My glory is what you ought to be about. You ought to love me. You ought to highlight me. You ought to highlight my word by how you live and how you speak. All of this has been produced in, by them, and it has produced in them unfaithfulness. That's the product. And so the principle of unfaithfulness is now being addressed here in chapter 2, verse 10 and following, because the, when faithfulness is compromised, it brings about personal and social consequences. Let's put that in our minds, mark that down somewhere. When faithfulness is compromised, it brings about personal and social consequences. You remember the priests were showing partiality in their teaching. said that in verse 9. So I've also made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you were not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. They're being partial in what they're teaching. They're not addressing issues as they ought to be addressing issues among the people. And therefore, there was partiality not only in their own lives, but also then there was partiality in the people because like priests, like people. Just as water itself seeks its own level, only rises to the level of its source, God's people will only attain to the height of those whom they follow. So if there's no faithfulness with the leaders, there will be no faithfulness with the people. Israel's leaders were unfaithful to God. And so too then were the people. And this led to various social and personal consequences. Three to be exact, they were unfaithful to the spiritual unity of the nation They were unfaithful to withhold or to hold together that spiritual unity that God had built into choosing Israel as a people. They were unfaithful to the spiritual family on a corporate level. And they were unfaithful to their own marriages. And I believe, beloved, that you can see this very decline even in our own society even as we live here in the 21st century. As the marriage goes, so goes the family. And as the family goes, so goes society. God says that there is spiritual adultery happening. There is ungodly marriages happening between believer and unbeliever. And there is physical adultery and rampant divorce going on in Israel. And the leaders, the leaders have failed to address the issue with the truth of God's word. And it has been, has brought massive social consequences to marriages and to the church family or to the, the synagogue of people, the, the people who come together to worship God. And it has brought significant consequences to the nation of Israel. I was recently watching part of a Q&A session with Paul Washer. Someone asked Paul Washer about what he thought to be the greatest threat on the church today. 21st century, what is the greatest threat you see coming upon the church? And his answer was unexpected by many. He said, the greatest threat to the church today are the pastors. 
People kind of chuckled. He said, no, I'm serious. The pastors. Pastors who refuse to preach the whole counsel of God. Pastors who compromise truth. Pastors who work to lighten the conviction that God brings through the teaching of His Word. Those who won't address sinful issues and who refuse to call sin, sin. That's the problem with the church. That's the greatest threat to the church. Well, Malachi's day was no different. Many of the ministers and the teachers were intimidated to the point of silence on issues, particularly regarding sexual practices of the unmarried. They were silent on speaking against the extramarital affairs of those who were part of the family of God, if you will, in Israel. They were quiet about the intermarrying of those who were part of Israel with those who were not part of the nation that God had chosen. And they were moot about the rampant acceptance of divorce. All because of fear of the wrong thing. And I think that's telling because there are many pastors today who refuse to speak out. They refuse to speak out about the fear or about sin issues for fear of repercussions that might come from within Christendom. And so here is Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, and God gives a call for renewal to faithfulness. And He gives a call in two ways, or two ways specifically in order to return to faithfulness. One, we must be faithful to the promise-keeping God by being faithful to the people of God. Let me say that again. We must be faithful to the promise-keeping God by being faithful to the people of God. We'll see that in verses 10 through 12. And then secondly, we must be faithful to the promise-keeping God by being faithful to the partner of our marriage the partner of our marriage, verses 13 through 16. So let's just begin with this first one. Faithful to the promise keeping God by being faithful to the people of God. Verse 10 begins this way. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our father? Specifically, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. It's interesting that Malachi in his prophecy is linking what he has already said in chapter 1 and verse 6 to this. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says, A son honors his father, a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? Here in chapter 10, he asks the rhetorical question. Do we not all have one father? The second question is like the first. Has not one God created us? 
In other words, it's just another way of saying the same thing he asked in the first question. Is not God our Father? It's a rhetorical question, and it refers to God. It refers to the one who created all of us. And if God has created all of us, and if God is our Father, and if we are a people of God, then why are we unfaithful to our promise-keeping, covenant-making God by treating others ungodly? By sinning against one another. He's not talking about people in general. He's talking about God's people. I think we need to be reminded of this truth. Every form of sin that the people of God engage in, no matter how big or how small, how visible or how invisible, in the eyes of God, it is an act of treachery against the whole body. Any sin that we commit in and of ourselves isn't just for ourselves. It is a sin against the whole body, to say the least of it being against God Himself. How can people profess to be partners in the covenant of God and yet commit spiritual and physical adultery? That's the question that Malachi is bringing forth. God had called his people to be his special possession, to be a holy nation. Malachi says, but look at what you're doing. They were actually dealing treacherously with each other. By the way, the Hebrew word for deal treacherously is a, is a small five-letter word. If we spell it in English letters, begad, begad, B-E-G-A-D. It's related to the word beged, B-E-G-E-D, B-A-G-A-D, B-E-G-E-D. The word beged is garment. It's a synonym word. And so what, what is God saying to them here Well, he's saying, in essence, that what they are doing through their living is participating in a spiritual cover-up. A spiritual cover-up. In other words, they were hiding. They were hiding by their sin, their promises made to God, and to their own kin, to their own even wives. And that was the real issue behind these words. That's what was going on. If God were their father, as they professed that he was, then shouldn't they be acting like sons? Shouldn't they be acting as if God is their father? If they would abuse their loyalty to their promise to God, then there was no loyalty that they would not abuse. And so there was this violation between them and God. And it showed in a violation of the promise through the practice of mixed marriages. Mixed marriages. Now, God is not talking about mixing ethnicities. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about inter-ethnic marriages when he talks about this idea of foreign uh, married to a, the daughter of a foreign god. 
He's not talking about two different people from two different ethnicities coming together and two different skin colors and they join together as a husband and wife. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is the marrying of two people who have cross-spiritual commitments. He's talking about two people who are not on the same page spiritually. In other words, we might even... Talk about it in our own generation. One is saved and one is not. A believer and an unbeliever. It's described here as being married to the daughter of a foreign god. This is the abomination that has taken place. They've dealt treacherously. They've, they've practiced in this cover-up, and this cover-up is an abomination. It has been committed in the whole nation, in the city They've profaned, i.e., the sanctuary of the Lord. Why? Because they're coming there as if they are genuine, which they are not. They're coming there if, as if they're authentic worshipers of God, and they're not. God loves His place of worship. And the issue is they have married the daughter of a foreign god. This was forbidden by God. This was something Israel was not to do. In fact, go back the Old Testament to Ezra. Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. The nation has been in exile. Now they have come back. Under Nehemiah, the wall is restored around Jerusalem. Now under Ezra. All of the temple uh, practices are being reinstituted. When the things had been completed, Ezra chapter 9, the princes approached me saying, the princes were the, the, the heads of the people. These are the, 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 the rulers, I guess, of the day, the, the patriarchs, and saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Well, what did they do? Well, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. The leaders, these are the leaders of the people. They've been foremost in doing this. Ezra says, when I heard about this, I tore my garment and my robe, pulled some of my hair of my head out and my beard and sat down appalled. And then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, right? that's people who feared the Lord, everyone who had a high honor for God's word and what God said and what God had commanded, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. At the evening offering, I rose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees, stretched out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, Oh my God, 
I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant, to give us a peg in his holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves yet in our bondage. Our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia, to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, to give us the wall of Judah, or in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since your God has have requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us an escaped remnant as this, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant, nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. For we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Of course, the next time they came together, they made an oath that they would do according to what God said and put away their foreign wives and get rid of all of those things. This was always the command of God. This is always what God required. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Notice why God said this. Why would God make such a command? Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. You see, there's the reason. 
There's the reason for Malachi's prophecy. Because when intermingling happened between those who were serving God and those who could care less about God by their very life and profession, it would turn those who believed away from God. That's the problem. That's the issue. And as a result of entering into these forbidden unions back in Malachi chapter 2, Israel, whom God had chosen from all the nations of the world to be a holy people and a royal priesthood, his own special possession, they had deliberately polluted themselves. And so Ezra, as I read in Ezra 9, indicts the spiritual leaders of his day for allowing that to happen. Just as the Apostle Paul warns New Testament believers to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul asks, what kind of union does a believer have with an unbeliever? Right, the answer is that is none. Light and dark cannot commix. We are a people who have been called out of darkness and transferred into light. All of it will bring trouble to your life. God wasn't saying to Israel, listen, don't intermingle with those people because they are not Jewish or because their skin color is different than yours or because they're a different heritage than yours because they had some different ethnicity than you. No, he's saying don't do it because of the consequences of such a union. They would turn the heart away from worshiping Him. This is kind of close to home for me recently, and unfortunately, I was confronted with this reality by means of a friend of mine I've known for 20 plus years. He and I were in seminary together. We talked often about ministry, and yet through a series of tragic events in his own life and the consequences of his family, his wife proved to not be a believer, and she left him and they divorced All through it, he seemed to remain faithful to her disobedience. Let her go peaceably, as the Bible said, she wanted out. And one day, recently, I called him to just catch up on life. He told me he was in a new relationship with a young gal, and I asked him how she came to know the Lord. And to my sad surprise, he said to me, well, she's not saved. And yet, he said, they were planning to be married in July last month. I was shocked. I began to challenge him on the very issue. I reminded him of what he had taught in the past as a pastor of the church, where they were at the time before his previous relationship broke. I reminded him of what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says about being unequally yoked. And he said to me, you know, I've thought much about that passage. And I just don't think that's what it's saying anymore. I said, well, that's convenient. 
I said, you desire to marry an unbeliever. And therefore you go ahead and adjust your theology. I warned him, what God says will happen, will happen. Trouble would come your way. He has moved away from the covenant-keeping God because of joining with an unbeliever. Well, notice what God's response is to the people to whom Malachi is writing, who have broken God's covenant by entering into these marriages to the daughters of foreign gods. Verse 12 says, As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Some commentators think that this is somewhat unclear as to what Malachi is saying. I think it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty clear the entirety of the extended family will be affected by it. I think that's what he's saying. Listen, your sin isn't just for you. The entirety of your extended family will be affected by it. We might even say it this way because of the Hebrew idiom that's being used in that verse. When it says everyone who awakes and everyone who answers, that's a Hebrew idiom that carries the idea meaning both root and branch. Both root and branch. In other words, the effect of such a thing has long and lasting effects upon the entire thing. Everything it touches. We might even say it this way. We might even put it down in these terms. You cannot dabble with sin. You cannot dabble with sin. And in this case, take the sin home and into your own life without it having a devastating effect upon the whole thing. Can't happen. Here's how Paul said it to the Corinthian church as they openly tolerated the sin of the man who was having an incestual relationship in the home with his father's wife. Paul said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, your disloyalty to God shows an outworking of your disloyalty to those who are close to you. Sadly, in my friend's situation, he has six daughters. Six daughters. They're going to bear the effects of such a tragic choice. It's inevitable. So, beloved, we must be faithful to the promise-keeping God by being faithful to the people of God. Secondly, secondly, Malachi says we must be faithful to the partner, to the to the faithful keeping God, to the to the to the faithful promise keeping God by being faithful to the partner of our marriage. Notice the indictment continues, verse thirteen, and this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. 
But not one has done so who is a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Because I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. God says to them again, oh, oh, if that's not enough, here's another thing that you're doing. What's that? You have divorced the wife of your youth. God had refused to give them access even though they covered the altar with their tears. You cover the altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning. Listen, for them, life is sad. The natural and spoken consequences of God are happening in their lives. They are not victims of circumstance. Their life is not bad in their eyes. It's bad because somehow they've been dealt a bad hand, but that's not the case. Verse 14 says, here's the reason. God's been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. The husbands had sinned against their wives and God had seen it. God was there. Why are you not hearing us, God? God says, because I'm a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now listen, I I don't want us to allow that to fall on deaf ears. Right? Broken marriage vows are not solely the concern of two consenting parties. There's a third involved. God is the witness. God is the witness. This is why marriage is treated as a covenant. In fact, just listen to the warning of Proverbs chapter 2. You know, Solomon is warning his son, son, listen to me. This is, these are words of wisdom. You must keep them. Fear God. Right? Listen to these. They're going to guard you. In Proverbs 2 verse 16 and following, he says this, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her past to be to the departed, none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. You say, what's the point of that, Pastor? What is, what is the point of all of that? The point is, the covenant of marriage is not to be treated lightly. Not to be treated as a game. It's not a throwaway. It's a weighty commitment. And to emphasize that, notice the language Notice the language that Malachi uses to describe the divorced wives. He says in verse uh, 14, notice the language he uses. He says, you've dealt treacherously. She's your companion. She's your wife by covenant. She's the wife of your youth. That's how he describes the one who's being tossed aside, the divorced wife. I loved how one Puritan writer put it. He put it this way, she whom you thus wronged was the companion of those earlier and brighter days when in the bloom of her young beauty she left her father's house and shared your early struggles and rejoiced in your later success. 
who walked arm in arm with you along the pilgrimage of life, cheering for you in its trials by her gentle ministry. And now, when the bloom of her youth has faded and the friends of her youth have gone, when her father and mother whom she left for you are in the grave, then then you cruelly cast her off as a worn-out, worthless thing and insult, insult her holiest affections by putting an idolater and a heathen in her place, unquote. All the Puritans had a way of saying it, didn't they? Those are pretty graphic words that describe what's going on. When God had joined them together, they were companions. And I believe that Malachi had in his mind, when using that term companion, I believe he had in his mind the very union of one flesh that God speaks about all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. They were one union. They were a union of one flesh. Why? Why do I say that? Because companion and one flesh imply harmony. They imply a togetherness, a oneness, a working together to achieve all that God brings by life, all the while sharing in both the heartaches and the joys. Therefore, the one flesh idea, I believe, is what God, through Malachi, is referring to in verse 15 when he speaks of the remnant of the Spirit. Remnant of the Spirit. God is the subject of that sentence, by the way. And the object is that idea, that one flesh idea. He was seeking a godly offspring. In other words, why did God make Adam and Eve one flesh when he could have given Adam... Many wives. God could have done that. But he didn't. God certainly had the creative power. He certainly had the ability to do that. However, because God was seeking godly offspring, he restricted man and woman to a unit. They're one. One flesh. The having of multiple would not be conducive to raising Godly children to the glory of God. That's reflected through the scriptures multiple times. Those where multiple wives are taken, there's only trouble. Trouble down through the age of Solomon, probably the most vivid of that example. And so when we come to verse 16, God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. I hate divorce. Why? Because it violates what God has intended. It violates the purposes of God. It violates the reality of God's desires. Now, Somebody's going to run up to me, possibly, after I'm done and say, but in Deuteronomy 24, doesn't it say, go there for a moment. That way I can answer the question before it rises. Deuteronomy 24, nation of Israel, Moses, Giving laws, notice what he says, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, 
And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. That's an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, a lot of new husbands like verse 5. I like verse 5 because when a man takes a wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Boy, wouldn't that be special. Get married, you get a year off. No wonder divorce was so rampant. Right? Jesus even spoke of this. Right? Go to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus spoke of this same issue because the Pharisees were all about it. They loved to be sticklers when it came to the law, particularly when it came to Moses. We're going to stick to it and we're going to hold you accountable to it, Jesus, because obviously you don't know the law like we do. Matthew chapter 19, it came about that when Jesus had finished with these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, this is the religious leaders, testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Right? Deuteronomy chapter 24 just said, if a husband has displeasure with his wife or some kind of sense of impropriety, something that he might think he shouldn't like anymore, maybe... As I've heard one pastor say, she burnt his toast in the morning, so he gets rid of her. And he answered and said, have you not read? I love that. They're asking him about the law, and he says, hey, haven't you guys read what it says, that he created them from the beginning, made male and female, and said, for this cause a man shall leave the father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's the one flesh idea. Jesus says, listen, the the design from God was unity, a togetherness that only God could take apart, and that by death. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh, verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're, they're going, but wait a minute, Jesus. Deuteronomy 24 says. Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart. <laughs> why did I have Moses put that there? Because I know your heart. You have a hard heart, and you'll abuse whatever you can abuse. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been that way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus says, listen, the reason why Moses even put that there, why I had him put that there, is because your hearts are wicked because you were getting rid of your wives for any reason whatsoever. And so there needed to be something to protect the innocent. 
You wanted to destroy them at any level. Like I said, maybe some of them said, hey, I can get a free year off. I'm going to get rid of this one and get a new wife. Then I don't have to work at all. I'm just home and I have this great opportunity. Oh, at the end of that, oh, she, she messed up. She didn't do what I wanted. She didn't shake out the carpets of my tent clearly enough. Get out of here. Here's your certificate. Go. Abuse was taking place all over the place. Deuteronomy 24 doesn't teach it that divorce is okay. Matthew chapter 19 clearly shows that. It's only under certain circumstances. It's a protection for the innocent. And so clearly God hates divorce. Go back to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. God hates divorce even even if he graciously allows it under certain cases of immorality, marital infidelity, certainly allows it, doesn't command it, but he allows it. Therefore, it says here in verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. That's why verse 16 says, therefore, take heed to your spirit. Do not deal treacherously. Do not deal treacherously. Few issues in our world today show more about the moral lack of integrity than that of divorce. It's brought about destruction of people, destruction of families, and I wholeheartedly believe it's under the destruction of our very society. I think the direct Destruction and demise of our society has a direct correlation to the decline of marriage and family. People marry and people unmarry all before God, whether they believe in Him or not. And God is meeting out the consequences. God still expects a married couple to work toward the plan that He laid out in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24, he brings a man and a woman together in the unity of one flesh. In our men's group last Monday night, someone asked about the Trinity. How, how do I understand how Jesus is God and God is God? And the question of the Trinity and the mysterious nature of that. And the only way that we can understand it in a limited sense, because we are not infinite in our own mind is to understand the reality of unity. Unity. They are unified. So too is a man and a woman. When they marry, they're unit. They're unified. There's a unity there that is inexplicable by any other explanation. And so God disdains and rejects the practice of divorce Verse 16 makes that patently clear. I hate divorce. So we as believers who know that, we as believers must maintain loyalty to God who created us and who joined us with a body of believers and a marriage partner that He has given to us. Anything less is a challenge to our claim that He is our Father and our Lord and our Master, just like He is saying to Israel. You say, I'm your Father, but you don't show that. 
Now, I think I, I think I might have an inkling of what's happening in some of our hearts right now as we think about this text, because some of us may be saying, but wait a minute, I have been divorced. I have been divorced in the past. And now I'm married. I'm married to another. I'm not married to the one I divorced. I'm married to another. Does that mean I need to leave the one I'm married to and go back to the one I had at first? How can I do that? How can I do that? In fact, they're married already. The answer is no. No, one sin does not ease or erase another potential sin. What God is saying to Israel is this, listen, remain faithful now. Remain faithful. I hate divorce. Stay faithful now. You're not being faithful. For in Christ, His grace covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? We believe in God. God is a gracious God, just like Ezra was praying. You're gracious to us. You have not given us what we deserve. We don't need to get out of the circumstance we're in. God knows the circumstance. God knows the heart. He knows your heart right now. What's God saying to the people of Israel? Listen, your worship is inauthentic. You're not being faithful, so be faithful. You've wearied, notice verse 17, you've wearied the Lord with your words. You've wearied the Lord with your words. We're not going to get into that tonight, but that's really what's happening. They're going to God and saying all kinds of things, making all kinds of commitments, saying that God is their God and He is not. God is simply saying, be faithful right now. Be faithful right now to Him, and be faithful right now to the spouse He has given you. Stop getting rid of them and dealing treacherously with them. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for this precious reminder that nothing has changed with you, that you still consider what you bring together a covenant relationship that reflects a relationship with you. Even whether people believe in you or not, you're our witness. And they will be held accountable for that. We're thankful for mercy. We're thankful for grace. We're thankful that in Christ, every sin is forgiven. Life brings all kinds of circumstances. We respond in ways so often that is sinful, especially when we don't know you. And yet none of that, none of that, praise God, none of that removes us from the love of God in Christ. Thank you for that tonight. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you are showing Israel through our study and how the implications of that even resonate in our own world and life. Help us to be faithful. Faithful to what we say to you. Faithful to what we say to others. Faithful to the people of God as we are faithful to the covenant promise-keeping God. And that means faithful in our homes, to our wives, to our families to those around us. 
Thank you that we have the Spirit of God in us, that we can exercise these truths to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.